If you have your Bibles, let's turn them to Matthew chapter 5, and that can be found on page 810. Matthew 5 on page 810 for those of you using these black Bibles around you. I've grown up all my life being around Christians and Christianity and going to church, and so for me, it is not a weird thing to open up the Bible. It's a normal thing to come to church and open the Bible, and the church that I grew up going to and have been going to ever since I've been a kid have been Bible churches, not necessarily the denomination Bible churches, but churches that had a high view of the Bible. But it's not lost on me, even though I have familiarity with it and I've now given my life to study it, that the Bible is, may I say, a strange book, or it's unique. If you're here today and you're not as familiar, you didn't grow up, I I don't want you to know that, I I want you to know that it is, in my opinion, a, a, a unique and rare book. It is not like any other book that you'd pick up at the store. Uh, it's confusing. It's written in la- languages that people don't even speak today. Uh, in the New Testament, it was written in Greek, and in the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew, and then there's some Aramaic mixed in, into it. Uh, there's a lot of controversy around the Bible. It's, there's all kinds of interpretations, and there's different translations, and then there's all kinds of, you know, issues that people have with the Bible. Some people love it. Some people hate it. It is the all-time bestseller, whether you like it or not. People are still buying it and still reading it. This church, Embassy Church, has decided from its foundation that we want to be a Bible-centered church. We want to have a high view of the Bible. And Some of you are here and you're a part of this church because you appreciate that. I had somebody at the door last week say, I really liked that we were in the Bible throughout the church service, that there was Bible readings, there was Bible teaching. It sounded like, Pastor Phil, what you were trying to communicate wasn't just, hey guys, I was eating some pizza and, you know, I had this thought come on my head while I was watching TV and I wanted to share that with you and that's the basis of my message. Or, hey, here's the latest books that are out and let me read some of the latest gurus on how to help your family or your marriage or your parenting, etc. From the beginning of our church, we've said we want to be a Bible-centered church, but how do we put those two thoughts together? The Bible is, let's just admit it, maybe for some of you it's not to you, but in general, there's some uniqueness that almost we could call strangeness about the Bible. It's, It's not one book, it's a collection of books. It's actually like in front of you on your lap is a library. There's books with apocalyptic literature in it. Most of you don't even know what that is. What is apocalyptic literature? There's a bunch of poetry. There's stories. What do we do with the stories? There's old letters that are written into it. There's history books. And on and on we could go. This, this book is a collection. A, the Bible, the, the word means a collection of books. It's a library before you. And I want you to know that we have a high view of it, and the main kind of takeaway for you to take today is because Jesus had a high view of the Bible. And if you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus, or you want to follow his teachings, and you think that he's not just a good teacher, but he's actually the Lord of my life, if that's who you are today, and most of you I know that's who you say you are, well then does your view of the Bible match Jesus' view of the Bible? And today we're going to get a glimpse into Jesus' own words about how he views the Bible and God's Word. And so the passage I'm about to read is going to give us a little foretaste of what is to come in the teachings of Jesus on God's Word. So this is a densely packed passage. It goes from verse 17 to verse 20. It is probably not an overstatement for me to say this is the most important passage of the Sermon on the Mount. It has been argued by many people that this is like the thesis statement. If the Sermon on the Mount was an essay, verses 1 through 16 are about an introduction and talking about who the citizens of the kingdom are and the Beatitudes and then the you are, salt of the earth, light of the world. And then verses 17 through 20 is really the core summary of what he's about to do the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So 
We need to really make sure we get this passage for a variety of reasons. It'll help us in our study through the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel of Matthew, but it's really going to help us view the Bible and how it relates to our lives. So let's read, and let's try and think through this together. Verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a very dense and important passage, as I just said. And so I'd like to try my best to put all the work of boiling it down into three simple action points and points for you. So first, read the Bible because it is a story. Point one, read the Bible because the view of Jesus in this passage is that the Bible is a story. Look at the very first words of verse 17. Do not think. Do not think. Do not suppose you could translate this phrase. In other words, there is a wrong way to think about who Jesus is and his views of the Bible. So I want to start where Jesus starts in this little paragraph. Do you presume that your view of the Bible is the correct one? Because it's obvious from Jesus' words right here, there is a wrong view about the Bible. There is a wrong view about Jesus. I would say my observation of the common thought of the day is, I like to think, fill in the blank, about Jesus or the Bible. Or my view and interpretation is fill in the blank, whatever that view might be. And so we have potentially even in this room people that say, well, I kind of view the Bible this way or I view the Bible this way. I think all of us should leave here today asking ourselves, do we think about the Bible the way Jesus thinks about it? So what does Jesus think about it? I said it's a story. And that's what Jesus says here. Look at verse 17 again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, I would like to translate this phrase for you because I don't think when you read it, you're going to think rightly about the Bible. You're going to think wrongly about the Bible. So let's translate it as story. The Jewish story. This phrase, law and prophets, is shorthand not just for a few laws in the Old Testament, and a few prophecies from some prophets. This phrase is shorthand for the whole narrative story of the entire Bible that Jesus has up to that point. And to put it simply, like, what is the Old Testament? What is the Old Testament when you open it up and you start in Genesis and you start reading? What is it? It's a story. Did you know that 80% of the Bible is either narrative stories or poetry? 80%. And I feel like this point is often missed by people as they read it. They think the Bible is a rule book. It is telling a story and not merely fables to learn life lessons. It is telling the story of the world and how you are in that world and what your part to play is and what God's doing in that. It's a cosmic, grand story, and that's why the Bible starts in the beginning in Genesis and takes us all the way through to predict and tell where this story is going. And so the reason why I think this phrase is unhelpful is because when most of you hear the word law, you're going to think about rules and laws and lawyers. 
and making sure that we're getting everything right. And really, the word law, it's the word Torah. It's the word Torah that means instruction, God's instruction. And there are a variety of ways that people use the word law when they're referring to it, especially like Jesus. Sometimes you could be referring to specific laws, and that would be the view of law being law or instruction being commands to obey. But there's also a use of Torah that means the first five books of the Bible. And a lot of times we use, view those books as primarily a bunch of laws and commands, but in fact, it's really a story. It starts with a story, and then there's little inserts of laws, and then they fail to obey those laws, so then the story continues, and they get more laws, and then the story continues, and that's really how the first five books go. It's not primarily just a rule book. So you need to get that concept. Do not think that the Bible is a rule book, first and foremost, that it's a story with rules in it. Another way to frame it is it is a relationship. I think a really good definition of this word law is covenant. Not because that's what the word means, but because that's the general concept. God made a covenant in the law. And the first five books of the Bible is referring to the law that God gave to to Abraham, the covenant God gave to Abraham and Moses. So we should see a covenant story between God and Israel that includes rules, but so much more than that. It's, it's in fact a story and a story about people and about relationships that includes rules. Is that the way you think about the Bible? Furthermore, look at the language Jesus used about fulfillment. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. If your view of the Bible is that it's just a bunch of laws or prophecies that are predictive of Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, and so look, the Messiah came and he was born in Bethlehem. See, the Bible's true. It tells prophecies. That's, that's a part of prophet. That's a part of prophecy. But you need to take the whole Old Testament as a story that's pointing you somewhere, and that finally you get to Jesus and he says, I have fulfilled that story. The word fulfillment is language of completion or wholeness. It is to take something that has a goal and bring it to its intended goal and purpose. And Jesus is saying that the whole law in Old Testament, the whole Bible of his day, has a goal. It's moving somewhere, and that somewhere is me. That's what he's trying to say here. So Jesus is fulfilling the law and prophets is like thinking about you reading a book. Reading a novel, reading a story. And imagine it being like a suspense novel where there's a bunch of buildup and eventually you get to the climactic point and then the story ends. And you're left hanging. Some of you like cliffhangers, many of you don't. Either way, imagine that. That's the sort of story so far. There's a buildup, there's a cliffhanger that has ended as the Old Testament story ends. Jesus says, I have finished the story. I have come to bring all the themes, characters, and loose ends tied up in me and who I am and what I'm doing as he lives on the earth at his part of the story. It's like when you get to the last chapter of a good book and all the things wrap up nicely and you're not left wanting more but so satisfied with the concluding story and all of its loose ends being tied up so nicely. And so this is why the sermon title in your bulletin says, Jesus is Israel's next and final chapter. The reason I use the word next is because Jesus says, I am not abolishing the story. I am not getting rid of it. I am not wanting to start a new story. I'm continuing the already established story. So Jesus is Israel's story. He is an Israelite. He is a Jewish man. And so he is the next chapter in that story. So he is not abolishing it, and that means that there is going to be a continuity or a continuation of the previous story. He's not a revolutionary that's going to start something new that has never happened. He's continuing something old, but giving a new dimension to that old story, taking it to a new scene and chapter. Think of it like a love story, a love story between a man and a woman. They were happily married. They were together. 
and this is no slight on the women in the room, but just for the sake of the illustration, the woman in this story keeps leaving the husband for many other men, time and time again. In this story, the man waits, does not get remarried, but pursues the woman again and again, every time forgiving her and saying, I want you back. That's the story of the Old Testament. God is that man, Israel is that woman, and Israel has turned away from God again and again, but God has been patient. God has been waiting. God has not said, well, forget you, Israel. We're just going to start with a whole nother nation, and I'll make them my treasured possession and people. It's not what he does. This is what Jesus is saying. I am not destroying or abolishing the whole story that's coming up to this point. I'm not starting a new people that is different from the old in the sense of the old story, but I'm starting a new people in terms of the new chapter of them having their new identity wrapped up in me. Jesus is saying, I am that man, by the way. I am that God who's been waiting for his bride, and I am running after her. And we're going to live happily ever after. That would be one way to understand this. And that would be my shorthand summary of do not think I have come to destroy or abolish the law and the prophets. Matthew is going to use this word abolish later to talk about destroying buildings and temples. To destroy means to dismantle. Jesus is pro-Old Testament story. He is pro-Jewish. He is not an anti-Semite. He, he wants to love the Jewish people and fulfill their story in his life. So my challenge to you is to see it as a story, and so therefore read it. Read it. Read the Bible like a story. If you're here today and you're new to Christianity or you're not a Christian, and you know yourself not to be one, I wonder, is this how you view the Bible? Most non-Christians I talk to do not view the Bible as a story. They view it as another self-help book or ancient wisdom. There might be stories in it, but they mostly view those stories of like, okay, I need to be like Daniel. Daniel was brave. We should be brave too. They don't see Daniel as another part of this grander story where all of these stories intersect with one another and find their ultimate conclusion with Jesus. If you're a parent and you have young children, it is very easy for us to do what I just described with Old Testament Bible stories. Turn them into little lessons for our kids. You know the story about Joseph and Joseph fleeing as a woman is trying to seduce him. When we read stories like that, we could tell our teenage sons and daughters, be like Joseph, run away from temptation and stand firm in your convictions. I think that that could be a, a helpful application or takeaway, but if that's all you get out of the Joseph story, you're missing the Joseph story. The Joseph story is about God and his deliverance of his people through hard times. Joseph has a downward trajectory into prison and down into all kinds of suffering and difficulty, but God redeems and restores and uses Joseph, and Joseph is very much a Christ-like figure. If you've never heard of these two resources, parents, I'd encourage you to purchase them and put them to good use. First one is the Jesus Storybook Bible. And for those of you that are not parents, I have heard many adults, especially parents that have read those stories to young children and said, wow, I needed to read the Jesus Storybook Bible because my view of the Bible was not about Jesus and one grand story. And I would recommend that even if you're not a parent, to pick up the Jesus Storybook Bible is excellent. Another one is the Big Picture Story Bible. And it is a big one. And it's got big pictures. And it tells the story of the whole Bible by giving you the big picture. And so if you're a parent or not a parent, I encourage you to read resources like this. And let's train our children to not just be good do good, moral lessons. Let's teach them the whole story of the Bible. If you're here today and you're a committed Christian and you read the Bible regularly, and maybe you've even thought about this point before, but I want to ask you, do you read the Bible mostly out of duty 
out of this is the obligation that I must do to follow Jesus, read my Bible every day when I wake up. I cannot tell you how many times I've had conversations with Christians for the last 10 plus years that I've been in ministry where people have said, hey, I'm not doing so well as a Christian right now. Oh, why is that? Well, I've not been reading my Bible. Really? That's the litmus test for what a good Christian is? Reading your Bible? Now, I am telling you, read your Bible. That's the point. So I'm not telling you stop reading the Bible. Read it in a different heart and in a different way. A, read it as a story. And B, read it out of delight. Not out of duty. And do it out of delight because you want to see the beauty of the story. And one simple way to do that is to not read small sections of the Bible, but large sections of the Bible. One of the ways for the Bible to not seem so strange is when you don't just read a little verse for the day and then a little devotional. That, my friends, is a helpful practice in some ways. But overall, I think it does a disservice in your view of the Bible. Read big chunks. Read a whole book in one sitting. If this week you're to only do one thing in your Bible reading, don't just read a little verse every day. Sit down one point for an hour or two and read a whole book of the Bible, like Hebrews. And just read it from beginning to end. Read all of Matthew in an hour or two. Or get together with a group of people and just be committed to reading the Bible out loud, not even doing a Bible study. Just get together and read long sections of it and then just pray and say, wow, that was good. This, my friends, is something I think we need to recover, the reading of Scripture. This is one of the reasons why we're a Bible church and we read the Bible is because the Bible commands us to read it in public. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says, be devoted to the public reading of Scripture. And so we see that in the New Testament, the instructions for how we're to organize ourselves as a church is to include readings of Scripture. But the individual devotional practices of reading the Bible a verse a day are not really something that's explicitly commanded. Public reading of Scripture is commanded. Getting together with other people and reading sections of the Bible But a lot of the way we think of Christian formation in terms of individualistic, me and the Bible, I think is something we need to rethink. And I'd encourage you, if you've never read the whole Bible, make that something you do. Start today. Do it by listening to the Bible on your commutes. There's so many resources today that there's really no excuse that if you want to just download something or get CDs or MP3s or whatever, and you could just listen to the Bible while you're doing dishes, and just say, every time I do dishes... Every time I cut the grass, every time I do this, I have this routine, and I'm going to listen to the Bible. My guess is that in the next year or so, you'll have the whole Bible done. Just listen to long sections of it. You don't have to do Bible study. Just read it as a story and become more familiar with it, and I think you'll start seeing the beauty of this story. That's the first point. Jesus talks about fulfilling the story of the law and the prophets. He's not doing away with it. He's continuing it. And so let's see how all the story climaxes in this concluding chapter called the Jesus part of the Bible, the New Testament. Secondly, trust the Bible because it is a true story. Do you see that in the text here of Jesus' view of the Bible? Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In this point, I want to key in on that phrase, not an iota or a dot, mostly because it captures the point, true story, reliability, the Bible is a trustworthy book, but also because most of us probably don't understand what does the word iota mean. And it's just the English phrase of the Hebrew letter yod. So if you look down in your Bible at any part and you see a comma, you all know what a comma is, right? A comma is about the same size of the Hebrew letter Yod in the Hebrew alphabet. So start putting it together. A Yod in the Hebrew letter and alphabet is a small letter. It's a small little stroke like a comma. Secondly, the next phrase you see is not a dot. And it's the least stroke of a pen. The best comparison I would say is think of the letter F, capital letter F, and the letter E. 
What's the difference between the capital letter F and the capital letter E? Just a small stroke at the bottom, right? That's what's being referred to here when Jesus says, not an iota, not a yod, or the least stroke of a pen, not a serif, which is to make one letter in the Hebrew alphabet slightly different than another one, and that one little stroke makes all the difference. It's in a whole other letter, but it's a small little stroke. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? That the whole Old Testament story that's leading up to something, that every little detail of it, including a little yod or a serif, will not fail. It will come to pass. Every part of it will come true in him. And so one takeaway from this is that you should trust the Bible. Jesus' view of the Bible is a high view. He does not have skepticism of the Bible, does it? Can you say not an iota or a dot, not a dotted I or a cross T will be missing or pass away if you have a low view, a very skeptical view of the Bible. See how incongruent those would be. You should count on the Bible, trust the Bible. Many people don't trust the Bible today because they believe it is outdated. Come on, man, really? Trust the Bible? It's so old. We've graduated beyond all of these things. Haven't you read the Bible? Did you do point one and read the Bible and see some of the violence in the Bible? Or how about some of its ethics and views on marriage and gender? What about some of its ideas about how we approach slavery? All kinds of issues that people ask or have questions about, and they say, no, we have progressed beyond the Bible. If that's you today, and my guess is some of you might struggle with those thoughts, maybe some of the specific ones, or maybe just the general idea that the Bible is outdated, and we should move beyond it, and it was good for its day and its time, but come on, it's 2018. I want to suggest to you that the entire idea that you're thinking about, and so this could be you or it could be friends you have. I would imagine you have a lot of friends that think this, and if you don't, then you need to make new friends that don't know Jesus because a lot of those friends probably think this. It's that we are progressing. We're moving on. The whole idea of, come on, get with the times, that stuff's old-fashioned, that the moral compass of our society is progressing. Have you ever heard that idea before? Raise your hand, please, to just somebody. Okay, so most of you are participating and listening. Thank you. Or you've never heard this in your head is in a sand. Like, this is a concept of our world today because we live in the United States of America. The United States of America is what's called the Western Hemisphere of our world. The Western Hemisphere of our world is about progress and the enlightenment and moving forward with thoughts and philosophies and ideas. Question, skeptic, skeptic of the Bible. Where does the idea of progress come from? The next time you get in a conversation with somebody that says, oh, the Bible's outdated, and they're presuming that there's been progress made and we need to move beyond the Bible, I would ask not to, you know, try and score points and do a jab. Oh, yeah, where'd progress come from? Not like that attitude, but the attitude of, really, that's an interesting thought. Have you ever thought that the Bible is actually the philosophical concept that gave you progress to begin with? In other words... Before the Judeo-Christian story worldview that I'm talking about, where the Bible's a story and that the, the world is going somewhere, before that, study ancient world philosophies and religions, and what were they? They were not progressive. They were not saying we were going somewhere. They were about cycles, that the world repeats itself. Think of Hinduism. That would be a classic example of a cyclical worldview. Do you know how the seasons come and go? Now, it feels like right now that the Chicago season of the winter will never end, but praise God we had some warm days. But spring comes, spring goes, then the summer comes, then the fall, and then the winter, and the seasons come and go, and people get born, and then people die, and people come and go. Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? It has this phrase right in the first chapter, just there's a time and a season for everything. Everything just kind of repeats. And like, really, what's going on? Are we really ever going anywhere? All the crime and evil and injustice in the world, it just seems like, well, if it's not one dictator, it's going to be another 10 years later somewhere else. 
If it's not one war, it's going to be another war. That's been the predominant worldview until the Bible. But then what happened was, is as the Bible started introducing the idea that God is telling a story and it's going somewhere, people learned that concept, but then rejected the God of the Bible and then took the concept of progress and said, yes, we want progress, but without the God who is making the progress. In other words, the whole idea of moral progress falls and shatters because in order to have that, you need the Bible. If you're not following, let me just put it this way illustratively. Imagine that the concept of progress and moving forward is a branch in the concept worldview of Jesus in the Bible. It's a branch on a tree. And what we've done is we've said, look, the the world is going somewhere, and it's a story, and there's going to be a finished utopian, wonderful paradise, and and that's where we're all headed. That concept comes from the Bible, and it's one of the branches of many other concepts in the Bible. What the people in the world today are doing is sitting, standing on that branch, but then saying, I don't want the rest of the tree, and so they're sawing the rest of the tree off and crashing down with no real place to stand. But they want to stand on the tree of progress, but they don't realize is that tree branch only comes with the rest of the tree. Or to put it a different way, imagine the Bible worldview as a car, and you're in the car and vehicle, and the idea of progress is we're going somewhere. We've got a destination, and we're heading somewhere, and that place is good. It's called heaven. It's called the new heavens and new earth. There's a progress. God has a story. It's going somewhere. And so the Bible is our vehicle that's telling us where we're going. It's the roadmap. But what people are doing in the world today is they're climbing in the front seat and they're taking that idea of progress and then they're driving the car into a ditch and they're getting nowhere with it because they're rejecting the whole idea of what God had set up for it. So is the Bible outdated? Well, the idea of being progressively moving forward is only from the Bible to begin with. Is the Bible unreliable? Can we really trust it? Jesus is saying that not even a little dot, not even a little yod or seraph will pass away. But doesn't he realize that those came from oral traditions? And can we really trust all the different translations? What do we do with questions like that? And I don't know if there's an easy, quick answer because really the best thing to do is just encourage somebody to say, really, have you done your homework before? Is that just like an easy excuse to not read and trust and study the Bible and have a high view of it because you've really looked at all of the historical documents and said, you know, comparatively, the Bible is just not trustworthy. For example, you might be talking to someone or you might think that I, in general, believe that the history that I've been taught in school and in education and the books that we read, it's, it's general history from the professors at Harvard and Yale and University of Chicago and Northwestern, wherever. You'd be like, yeah, the, they're telling true facts. But do you realize that when they get into ancient history, that there is just a huge difference between the sort of manuscript copies of the Bible to show its reliability and its preservation in comparison to like Homer's Iliad and other books of history written by the first historians in Jewish and Greek literature. Your whole view of world history is based on some of those documents, but you will have maybe a handful, if that, of those documents. In comparison, the Bible has about five, six, seven thousand different manuscript copies of some of the earliest records of the Bible. Why does Jesus have such a high view of the Bible? Because he knows that God is preserving his word throughout all time and history, and he is using human instruments through both oral tradition and written record to make a reliable account for you. So the idea that it's unreliable because there's all these different passing over is just, to me, the sign of ignorance and never actually doing your homework. So I'd encourage you, if you have that view, to just simply do your homework study how the Bible came to be, and see if you are not amazed and astonished with how ridiculous the comparison is between the Bible in its reliability and other ancient works. Some people think the Bible is illogical and we can't trust it for those reasons. 
Oh, there's all kinds of contradictions in it, right? Now, I think it's easy for you to find contradictions in the Bible, but if you view the Bible as a story and you start seeing it as a story, you might realize that, oh, maybe some of these contradictions are just because this part is telling this part of the story and this part's telling this part of the story. And these weren't meant to like contradict one another, but tell you that it's progressing. And that's part of one reason that these contradictions are pointed out. Like, well, you Christians, you don't follow all the Old Testament laws. What's the deal? Some of them contradict the New Testament laws. And see, there's all these contradictions. No, that's just that part of the story. And you read it, and you see where it's going. And you get to this part where we are today, and you realize, okay. That's not as crazy and as weird and as illogical as I first thought. There's much more to say on all these points, but the bottom line is this. Do you trust the Bible like it seems Jesus does? I don't trust the Bible because all of these ancient manuscripts, first and foremost. I don't trust the Bible because it's what all the scholars say. I trust the Bible because it's what Jesus says. He loves and trusts the Bible. Do you love and trust Jesus? And if you do, then even if you have questions, even if you don't understand everything, you can trust Jesus because he's so good. Have you ever read about Jesus and been like, no, that guy's just a loser and he's just not worthy of my trust and he's just so self-serving, and he's just got an agenda for his own little mission there, and it's just like, yeah, I don't like guys like that. Nobody reads Jesus and says, man, this guy's just a big jerk. Do you view the Bible the same way Jesus does? So let's read it as a story, and secondly, let's trust it as a true story. Thirdly, and finally, practice the Bible because it is a dramatic story. It is a, a theatrical story. Look at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this section, these last two verses, really relate to one another. It says, therefore, here's, here's my concluding point, and this is, I think, the thesis statement, as I said, of what Jesus is about to do in the next several sections. Therefore, because I am completing the story, because I am not doing away and destroying the old story and the Old Testament, it will continue, and you can trust it, so therefore, put it into practice. And whoever loosens it or relaxes it will be least. Whoever practices it and does it, do you see the comparison? You either have a high view of the Bible and you do it and you put it into practice. You don't just read it, but you obey it and you follow it. And you think that it's the source of life. And it has the best description for how we should live together as humans. Or you're kind of loosey goosey on it, you know, watered down, not really high view of the Bible. And if that's you, then you would be least, or as he says in verse 20, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, because in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and Pharisees, or should I say the most holy people you can possibly think of. That's Phil's translation. The people that have what seems like on the outside surface, like, wow, those people are religious and they have their act together. In that day of Jesus' time, there would have been these people called scribes and Pharisees who would have appeared to be the most serious Bible people that existed. And he's saying that your righteousness must exceed even them. And at this point, you're saying, whoa, that's impossible. And it's not impossible if you're following the story. And you should hear these words and say, no, I should put this into practice. There are many, many people, and I don't think that this idea is completely false or off. I just don't think that's what Jesus is teaching here. And this, that's the idea that what Jesus is doing here is just putting the bar so high to say, listen, here's the standard. Well, none of you can do it, so you just need grace. There's a general sense to which that's true throughout the Old and New Testament. 
that God's standard is holiness and his standard is high and you and I will always fall short of God's holy standard and therefore we need grace. That, though, is not what I think Jesus is saying here. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a really, really high standard. Okay, now all of you just feel terrible and you're big failures, so that's why I died on the cross. That's not what he's saying here. He's not making that point here. We should not insert that point here. We should let Jesus say what he's saying. And he's saying that your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees. And even though on the surface that might sound, wow, then we got to really try harder. No, follow the story. The story doesn't say try harder. The story says God's going to change your heart because this new relationship, when the final chapter comes, is that God's going to give his spirit and put his law on your heart, something that the scribes and Pharisees never had. That makes all the difference. So I want you to read this phrase the way I think Jesus meant it to. Put it into practice. Do it. See the Bible as a dramatic story. One-third of the Sermon on the Mount is, is really interesting. It's, if you were to kind of add up all the verses, one-third of it is almost Jesus just telling you, now do this. I just told you this, now go do it. So, for example, if you turn over to Matthew 7, look at the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. Verse 24 of Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And that was how he ended. And they were all astonished. So do it, he says. It'd be like every time I preach a message, come back and say, now, now do this. And just saying it again and again to make the point. I think Jesus wants us to put his laws and his words and the whole flow of the story in mind into practice. Think of it like reading a script as a theater drama and you are a character and you have a part to play. And the world is our stage, and as we do so, we are to read the script of the whole story, and your part is not the Old Testament. That's not your chapter. That's not where you come into the story as a character. You come in after Jesus. You are a new covenant person, and if you're a follower of Jesus, we don't follow the Old Testament script. We follow the New Testament script that is built off of the Old Testament. And that's why he doesn't abolish the laws, but he says, no, these laws are going to be fulfilled in me, and these laws will be continued in their heart. And the very core of what the Old Testament law was, Jesus is going to summarize again and again, it's love God and love your neighbor. He's not doing away with that concept. That was the Old Testament in some form, summary form. Old Testament is love God, love your neighbor in terms of the commandments. New Testament, what's the general idea of Jesus' commands? Love God, love your neighbor. So is he abolishing and doing away with those laws? No, he is upholding the law. He is saying that's the same kind of law. But there's a new relationship with God because of Jesus putting his Holy Spirit and law in your heart. So therefore you can live it out out of true love for God that you could have never before. And this far surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. There will be a righteousness for all in the kingdom of heaven that is far greater than even the greatest men of the people in the first act of the story. This is why Gina read Matthew chapter 11. Did you follow that story there? John the Baptist is one of the greatest, and Jesus says the greatest prophet in the first act of the Bible story. And he's struggling with whether or not Jesus is actually the one that's going to bring this story to conclusion, and there's this dialogue back and forth, and eventually he tells, Jesus tells the people, listen, John the Baptist was the greatest person that was ever born of a human woman. G John the Baptist was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament era, but a, a new chapter has dawned, and anybody that is even the least in the new chapter will be greater than even John the Baptist. So let Jesus interpret his own words and start to realize that if you read just a few chapters over in like Matthew 11, you'll see that Jesus talked about the law and prophets prophesying about him in Matthew 11, 11 through 15. 
And so that was one of the reasons I wanted you to hear that passage beforehand. Jesus is the next and final chapter of the story. The scribes and Pharisees had external obedience, but their hearts were far from God. We will see this again and again throughout Matthew. And so this is a continuation of the previous story. He's not abolishing it. But the same way, it is a difference because of this new covenant and Holy Spirit. It's made on better promises. And so to sum it up this way, today's modern day plays are in two acts. If you've been to a play, if you've not, Adam, our musician that leads us most Sundays, he's constantly doing theater. You can come anytime, right Adam? And you've got all kinds of dates and shows. And there's typically act one, and act two in an intermission in between. So get that concept in your mind. And as you do so, realize that the Jewish worldview of the story of the world was described this way. And if you've been around the Bible, you've heard this before, at least the words. There is the present age, that's act one. And then there is the age to come, that is act two. And those two different acts are the way that the Jewish people talked about the whole story of the world. Act one, the present age. Act two, the age to come. Now, the present age is in fact what I believe Jesus is talking about in verse 18. Look down at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. That's talking about the present heaven and earth. That's talking about the present order of heaven and earth. And the present age, act one, that he's referring to here, it is going to pass away. It will come to an end. You and I are now living in a day where we are in the present heaven and earth with all of its good and its bad. And in general, act one is marked by a lot of bad, a lot of evil and pain and suffering. And so when we talk about act one, we're looking at it in very dim, dark, negative tones and themes. The lighting on the stage is not bright and cheery and flowers are everywhere. It's like, ugh, There is pain and suffering and sorrow, and there's repeat cycles of this pain and suffering and sorrow in Act 1, the present evil age, if you want to put it that way. That's the current heaven and earth. But he says that there will be a day that it passes away. You're like, well, it doesn't quite say that, but he does later. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24 to just peek ahead and help you see that Jesus is going to talk about this coming age, a coming day. So Matthew 24, page 830, 24, verse 29, Jesus is going to describe when the present age comes away and the age to come becomes act two starts. So verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Notice the language, heaven and earth is dark and the heavens are shaking. And then look verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is, by the way, a reference back to Daniel. If you know the story, you know about Daniel. You're like, oh, this is that time when God's gonna establish his rule and reign all over the earth. Verse 31, and he will send out his angels in a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And if you drop down, he's gonna talk about a fig tree, but look at the very end of verse 35 in the next paragraph. Or 34, start there. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Here's the big idea. Jesus is saying, if I were to illustrate it this way, just look at two sheets of paper, okay? Act one. This is the present heaven and earth. We live in act one right now. We are still in this present heaven and earth. Have you guys noticed that? Yes. That's where we live. Here's act two. And Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, he brings the age to come onto, and there's now an overlap between these two ages. And not only do we live in act one, but we also live in act two now. Because act two began when Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of the Father in clouds of glory, and it started act two overlapping. So this doesn't work well with drama and theater because, Adam, you can maybe help us with this. I don't know of Acts 1 and 2 overlapping and like just forgetting the intermission or whatever. Or you could say we live in this intermission period. I don't know. The point is, is that this is the future. 
Heaven and earth is passing away. And by that, I mostly mean the present order of pain, evil, and suffering. But the new day has dawned. Jesus has come. He has brought the new age to come. And it brings new hearts and new people and new communities because he is the new king, as we sang earlier, and he is completing the story. And that's us. That's where we live. What we should do then is read that whole act and story and say, friends, if that's true, and it it most certainly is, Jesus has come, he has died, he has risen, he has ascended, it has been started, the present kingdom is now here, now, and its fullness will come later when the present act one finally passes fully away. When this happens, or before that happens, we, we live now, in the time between the times in the present age with the age to come already here, the overlap of Acts 1 and 2. So that's your script. That's your big overarching story, and you read the New Testament documents, and you should now live as if that's true. Do do you think right now that you have the power inside of you, if you're a Christian by faith, to have righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees? Too many of us are reading passages like that and being like, no, no. We're just sinners. Yes, we still sin. But God promised to send the Spirit, and he sent it. And now there's new creation people who have God's law written on their hearts. And you can sin a lot less and have new desires in your heart. And one of the things you need more than anything is to be reminded that God is at work in and through this world and in you. Be reminded of that, friends. The age to come is here now. So read the Bible. Do it. Trust the Bible. Practice that. Practice the Bible. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks for the overarching story of the Bible that has been preserved for us. Thank you for the men and women who have given their lives to translate it into English so we don't all have to learn Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Thank you, God, for the many different translations in the Bible. We praise God that it's not confusing that there's many translations, but it's actually helpful so we can compare them and get to the very heart and core of what you said. And God, we're so thankful that as we read the bigger storyline, even if we read it in many different translations, the message is clear. The present evil age is coming to an end, and a new age has already dawned in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and that we now have new resurrection power alive in us, and I pray that we would live out of that. God, would you give us boldness and strength to declare the good news to the world around us that is dying and decaying and tell them to get in line with the new day. If anything, we should be telling all the world around us, you guys are out of fashion. So God, I pray that you'd give us the boldness to tell the rest of the world that they need to get with the times. It's 2018. The new age has already broken in 2,000 years ago. I pray that we would so live that way, preach that message, And we would be salt and light in the earth because of it. Thank you, thank you for the Bible and for Jesus' words on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're here today and you are a Bible-believing Christian, you hopefully, to some measure or another, trust and treasure the Christ that is revealed in the Bible, whether you have all your questions answered or figured out.